and welcome to the Tavern Chat Podcast. I am your host, Eric Tenkar, your bartender in the OSR, you may be prior to Tenkar's Tavern, and this is another of our fireside chats with one of our designers and makers in the gaming community. Today, I have with us Alexander McCree. Alex, welcome. Thanks for having me back on the show. Oh, always, always pleasant. Always a good time. Now, Alex, since you've already been here, we're not going to go through those five questions. I, I will link the prior episode in the show notes. Folks want to go back and, and listen to Alex's first uh, fireside chat. But right now, Alex has uh, a new book out. Alex, uh, what have you just released? The book is called Arbiter of Worlds, and it is a primer for game masters. Uh, intended to be something like a spiritual successor to Gary Gygax's Master of the Game, which I read um, as a teenager and felt very inspired by. Um, my sense is that the RPG hobby as a whole is held back by lack of people uh, to run games, and I, I wanted to do something to uh, help create another generation of Game Masters. Well, Game Mastering is certainly uh, a, a skill. I mean, it's certainly a skill that... that you need to be a player, but uh, to be a game master, you are juggling a lot of balls at the same time. So, yeah, it's a it's a really complex task. I mean, I don't know too many hobbies that require you to have good math skills, good social skills, good organizational skills, creative writing. Like it, it, it really requires almost a renaissance man to be able to do everything well. And I think most of us obviously fall down in one area or another, and we have our different strengths and weaknesses. But it's a challenging hobby. It's a challenging pastime. Well, I, I know organizational skills is where I fail at. That's, that's why I have a have pecs on the uh, on the uh, ten cars tavern w- world of social media because if it wasn't for pecs, it was all full apart. I do you do you run games? Skills. You do, right? You ran I, an axe campaign, I, as I recall. I, I, I am primarily a game master. I run an axe campaign. That an axe, the axe campaign was, I think, my first. Well, it, it, we ran a short Osric campaign for a couple of weeks, and then I threw myself into axe. And that was all because of D&D Next. We, we formed, a, when we were playtesting what became 5e, I became part of a really solid gaming group. But our experience with the... Uh, uh, D&D Next as a playtest uh, burned at our GM and we wanted uh, to keep oh it was painful it, you, you would play a version that you thought you might like and then you then you come back two weeks later and it was a version that you wanted to throw literally you wanted to print it out just so you could burn it um, so I didn't realize it was, it, was that, it was that tumultuous I wasn't involved with that playtest at all yeah yeah we were in the friends and family uh, part so uh, we were on in pretty early before the rules locked down, and we had a great we had a really uh, you know great GM, and he was GMing for people who came from uh, different preferences in gaming, whether it was OSR, 4E, Pathfinder. It was it was interesting to say the, the least. The 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 4E OSR in one uh, union in one group must have been tough. Uh, you know the four the four readjusted better than the Pathfinder player. The Pathfinder player 
didn't like the idea that you could uh, role play out an interaction with a goblin tribe and convince them not to attack. There had to be a die roll involved. And when there was no die roll involved, yeah, there was a hissy fit. So. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. No, that, that, that I think was also probably led to part of my, my, my DM's desire to, you know, hang it up for a bit. So prior, am I, before I took my break from gaming, I was pretty much if it was D and was the only I was the only GM. If you were playing riffs, other people would GM it, but if it was it was D and D or pretty much anything of the fantasy game like Murps or Warhammer, that was me. When I came back to gaming, I was the you know, we were doing stuff on virtual tabletops. I was the GM for years. So uh getting on the other side of the the, the virtual screen uh, has been rare for me, and at conventions, I pretty much run run games. I don't get a chance to play. But, you know, I run them. I ran three sessions of Swords with Relight at uh, GaryCon uh, the other week, and I had a blast. Great time. Okay, so, but I don't get a chance to sit in a player's side. So, as a as a game master in in the book, I identify four basic components to being a GM. You know, I call them the judge world builder, adversary, and storyteller function. And I rate them in that that order of importance. I get a lot of pushback on the, the order I rate them. And I'm curious how you come in. Like, so of those four, what do you think is the most important? What do you think is the second most important, et cetera? Hmm. Run them by me again so I can make sure I get them. All right. So first, uh, your first order. There, there's judge, which is, you know, maintaining the rules yeah. of the game in a fair and objective manner. Uh, Impartiality. Then, then world builder, who's responsible for weaving together the uh, the world which the players will explore. Uh, adversary, which is controlling particular NPC opponents. Uh, and finally, storyteller, which is um, offering it all up in a very narrative way. Okay, well, I, I'm going to tell you flat out. I If you're asking me uh, if I'm running a campaign at... Yeah, with, with with recurring players over a length of time, I think that your order is actually pretty much on the money, because if you're not being if, if you're not running the game in an impartial manner, you're not going to keep your players long term. I think that it's it's hugely key. They want it for for your world, which is the next part will be the world builder, putting this all together. For that to succeed, they have to feel that it has its uh, own impetus, its own its own life to it, and you're not going to have that if you aren't impartial. Uh, the adversary part is because you're presenting adventures, uh, wilderness or dungeon, where they're there to encounter creatures, kill shit and take their stuff, or wh whatever, find the MacGuffin. And you have to be a storyteller on some level, because if you aren't an effective storyteller, it's going to be hard to maintain that over multiple sessions. However, if you are talking about running something at a convention, I, I think that uh, storyteller moves up because you have less time to interact with those players and you have to grab them in quicker. So, it depends. but for a home campaign, I or you know a, a, a normal a normal game, 
Yes, I think you've you've got those in in a perfect order. I think they switch around though at convention play because it's a one shot. I think it makes good. It makes good sense. The focus of the book is definitely on building and running fantasy campaigns for the long term. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of the one of the the big concepts I talk about, and I think you just alluded this in judging, is the notion that. Uh, you know, what makes a role-playing game distinctively fun, separate from the sort of fun you can have in any other hobby, is the sense of agency that the players have, where they can make meaningful choices that have consequences for themselves and their friends. And for that to be true, you know, there has to be objectivity in the rulings, there has to be, you know, actual consequences to their actions, and there has to be a world that exists separate from the existence of the players like it can't just be purely a subjective kind of solipsistic thing because that actually takes away agency as well and so that's why i put judge as the absolute top most important criteria for long-term play oh definitely because again for your players to buy into the campaign it has to feel like it's living and for it to feel like it's living it means it can't be controlled by the gm or can't appear to yeah it has to have its own life and if you're not impartial to the events that are going on in it, if you've it, it, or, to take it to the extreme, if you're the GM and you already know, no matter what your players do, a certain event's going to happen, and somehow they've done actions that should prevent it, and you still push it through, and you're you're not being impartial. No, exactly, exactly, and I think that I think that is ruinous to long-term campaign play because eventually the players will figure it out. They'll see through your little magic tricks and see the wizard behind the curtain. And at that point they've lost their sense of belief in the world and you can't really recapture that trust and faith. No, certainly not. Absolutely. So, um, so the, the book is a little bit in a sense, a little bit of a reaction against some of the more storytelling focused handbooks I've read in the past for game masters where you know, uh, I, I kind of go on a rant against the Dungeon Master 2, Dungeon Master Guide 2 for 3.5, which tells you, you know, you should fudge dice and you should change encounters dynamically to make sure the players are always challenged. And, you know, you shouldn't kill people off because that's not fun. And, you know, and I just basically describe it as the worst advice ever given to any game master. And and if you're running a campaign, certainly it's some of those aspects, I, I personally think, because, again, and we're talking two different things here, but if you're running a convention game, it's a different dynamic because they've got a three or four hour slot and you're trying to entertain them. Your home right. game, you've got uh, anywhere from three months to uh, 13 years where you're going to have this group together and it isn't, it's less about a quick entertainment and it's more about the the world growth and the interaction and how their actions are going to impact the world locally or, or, or largely. And that is, is huge to me. When I, when I run campaigns, I want to see what my players wind up screwing up with my best laid plans. Cause that's usually better stuff than what I thought of. Yeah. It's a, I, I see a long-term campaign as, you know, it's a shared consensual hallucination, a shared consensual um, dream. And what makes it so fascinating is if you've played for a year and you, you've got your beloved character and then they're about to die and your friend rushes in and sacrifices his character's life to save yours, like that's really meaningful. You know, that that's something that happened for real, in a sense, within your circle of friends that will be talked about and remembered for years. 
And there's just, there's no other real entertainment that offers that. Like even video games, with the very rare exception of something like Eve, don't really have that level of agency. There's no real way to have any permanent or long lasting impact. No, no certainly not. Because, because video games have to uh, be written for and respond to the greatest common denominator. They're massively multiplayer. Uh, games because they are massive in numbers, whereas your campaign, you're dealing with a half dozen people, more or less. So the dynamics are, are certainly party dynamics or group dynamics, whereas of the MMO, there's, there's, too, there's just too much of a, of a, of a churn and too much of a, uh, a, a player base to get those dynamics that you get at the table. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so kind of in the book, I, I mean, I lay this out in the first couple chapters, this theory, and then the rest is just a deep dive exploration of each of the four different categories and how, um, you know, how you can improve your skills in each. And then it ends with pragmatic advice. Like this is, you know, this is how you schedule a game session. This is how you schedule a campaign. You know, this is the attitude you have to have towards it. Like one of the things I talk about is you need to be, you need to view it as, uh, as a, an intramural sports team. Um, where when you say you're going to play, you're committing that you're actually going to show up to the games. Um, it's not just a pastime that you drift in and out, and you should tell your players that up front. Say, look, it's like committing to the bowling league. You know, you, you're going to be bowling for the season, so mark your Thursdays off. And, um, you know, and, and that's the, the spiel I use with my players, and they get it. They're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, a lot of times the uh, that responsibility falls the GM shoulders because if the GM doesn't show up. Nobody's gaming. Exactly. And if one person at the table doesn't show up. Uh, you would just, uh, but it, it, if you don't have that full group, you, a, you lose your full group dynamic, which is usually different than only just having a partial number of people. And the idea, you got to suspend your disbelief that, all right, so uh, Johnny is missing characters wandering off watching the horses as the rest of us explore the dungeon. He wouldn't normally do that, but he is today. It, 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 all right. maybe, maybe saying ruin it is going too far, but it certainly uh, affects my ability to, to buy in, I guess, when that happens. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have a rule in, in our campaigns that, that I run that if you don't show up, someone else plays your character as a henchman. And if you die when you weren't there, it's just too bad. You should have been there. So that tends to encourage people to make sure that they're going to come because they all worry that someone else will get them killed. Hey, it's not your not your character, right? If you're going to make a stupid decision, you should make it for somebody else. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Kara thinks we should check the trap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, they have no uh, ability to detect traps except by banging on them. But go ahead, try it. it you know, it'll be fine. She's curious. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's got the uh, most hit points. So it's, yeah, that's already right there. Gosh, we do have one character who has gotten such good saves. He's saving on like a two or higher on D20. And so they use him essentially as a trap detector. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Freaking dwarf. <laughs> nice. Well, well, if you're playing Axe, it wouldn't be a halfling then, would it? So. Well, there's halflings now in Axe. They made me put them in. Yeah, I know, but I, I, I still don't regard them as canon in Axe. I'm sorry. I don't either. They're not canon. They're just, you know, 
They're supplement, supplemental material that's optional. Yeah, okay. If you, if, if, if you want to play Axe that really isn't Axe, put your half things in. And, I, and listen, I'm happy they're in, because but I just, if I was going to play a game of Adventure Conqueror King, I, I, and if I'm going to run it, I guess I'd have to run it, uh, the original Buzz book. It would be no half I mean, do you, do you ever know, did I ever tell you why I don't include halflings in the core? Like what my, what my issue with halflings is? I don't recall. I don't think so. So halflings were created by J.R.R. Tolkien for Lord of the Rings, very specifically to be the least likely adventurers possible. They were supposed to be not just, you know, a young man who aspires to greatness, but the least likely people ever to achieve greatness, humble and uh, unadventurous and stay at home. And, um, but because they appear in the book, people are like, oh, that's cool. So a fellowship is hobbit, dwarf, elf, human. So then they make their way into D&D and they go and become one of the standard four adventuring races. When the whole point of the race and everything about it is that they're not adventurers at all and have no business being there. And it would be like nowadays, if you wrote, if, if Tolkien wrote today, and he made Frodo uh, a, a quadriplegic. Like quadriplegic would be a core class because it's in Lord of the Rings. It's just, it's ridiculous. Like there's no reason for them to be there. So anyway, that's why I don't include them. I, 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 I think they had a philosophical role to play in Lord of the Rings. And outside of that context, they become absurd. Well, weren't the uh, white box that limited them to fourth level, which would mean that nobody in their right mind would probably play them? Yeah, you could tell you could tell Gary was quite dismissive of them, but he kind of put them in because he felt like he had to. Right. You know, and and then as as AD and D came on, all the demi humans got thief as an unlimited class, and then that kind of like made halflings like the Uber thieves. Yeah, exactly. And then you had sort of the Dragonlance Kinder influence, where they oh, they managed God. to create a race that was even more annoying than halfling. Well, I, I never found the pure, you know, the original halfling all that annoying. But once you brought Kender in, Kender was the excuse for uh, inter-party strife, and and that was that was rough. Yeah, I, I, I can never justify him as as a as a as a character in a book. Um, you know, when you're reading it, yeah, that that's that's fine. But to actually put it into your RPG game and into your in, into your party with any player who has that little bit of an asshole in them. Um, yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, to, to be fair, the, the, the halfling problem is one that um, was really just the beginning because, you know, you eventually get to the point where every rare thing becomes the standard thing. So there's no one is actually a fighter in third edition D&D. They're always like fighter two, ranger four, monk seven, or, you know, these bizarre combinations. So I, uh, I, I just, I wanted to get back to more literary archetypes in Axe, more, um, you know, heroic classic archetypes. So. Well, and I, and I think, uh, and I talk about this a, a lot when one of my questions that I ask people is, you know, racist class and how they feel about it, feel about it when I do these firesides. And I uh, usually, you know, if there's somewhere in the middle, I was like, well, you know, Axe to me had the perfect solution, which gave you racial classes that so you weren't just a dwarven fighter. You know, you weren't just, uh, you know, an elven magic user 
it was a racial class and you chose that niche within the niche. And I, that, I thought that was uh, the ideal solution for me. Can't speak for everybody. I should, but I can't. But uh, I, I, I thought you did a great job with that. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, I was inspired by the, the uh, old gazetteers from the BECMI series. In some of the gazetteers, they had these kind of esoteric classes that were only open to particular races. And um, and I said, you know, rather than this have this be a, a weird thing in supplements, like let's make this a core part of the game. And each culture more or less has its own um, set of classes. I mean, you could probably actually divide humans at this point in the game into like civilized humans and barbarian humans because of the, you know, where the barbarian humans have barbarian, berserker, shaman, uh, rune maker as their class options. And then the civilized humans have, you know, fighter, paladin, cleric, etc. Um, yeah, there's not a huge gain from doing so, but I think, you know, like, I think classes really should be embedded in, in, in the in-world culture. And that's something that always irked me about the new multi-classing systems of current games where you can just pick up a level of barbarian. Like, how do you pick up a level of barbarian? If you put me in the woods, I will just die. I won't like learn how to go berserk. Very, right. yeah. It's, it's a cultural thing and, and as such should be regarded like I, I I that's why I like my old school games absolutely yeah yeah most certainly um yeah so the um uh the other couple other things I think in the book are worth interesting that uh I'd love to get your opinion on one of them yeah. is um how uh how I describe the role of the adversary and what I basically say is that the game master is god but when he plays the adversary, he acts as Satan. So it's similar to like the book of Job, where God wants Job to show that, you know, he is a man of faith. He wants Job to succeed and prove his faith. But he empowers the Satan, the adversary, with a certain set of powers to test and challenge Job. Now, it's not all of God's powers because that would be an impossible challenge for anyone to meet. It's some of them. So I think as a, as a GM, you have to separate your full scope of your powers from your circumspect uh, nature of your individual adversaries that you're playing. And I think that, you know, uh, it's it's the balance point between the killer GM who's trying to rack up a body count, which is dumb, and then the, the softy GM who's afraid to have the bad guy go for the kill shot, which is also dumb. Oh, uh, definitely. And I, you know, I never actually thought about it in those exact terms, but it is more accurate than I, I, I expected it to be once you, once you sort of bring it up. Because, you know, in theory, yes, you're right. At the GM, you have godlike powers. You're creating the world. You're presenting uh, everything that they're going to come into conflict with. And I think uh, at the same time, you're, you're there to tempt them. Because if you're not tempting your players, they're not going to be going on adventure. So, yeah, you are the great temp tempter. Exactly. And, right. and, and there's another aspect to that, too, is that, Yes, you have to limit your godlike powers because a lot of times you're hearing your party's or your players' plans. They're they're talking at the table what they plan on doing, what how they're going to handle this, and you have to limit your godlike ability and say, "Listen, my my adversaries that I'm running here. If it's another package, I'm ignoring it. Uh, but if, I have to ignore." Uh, my knowledge, my, 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 my knowledge that my players are giving me 
to not use it against them because I am theoretically God. You have to look at yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, and, and that's a hard thing to do. You have to get, learn to sort of compartmentalize your knowledge. But I, th I think it's essential. Um, otherwise, you get the situation where, which I've seen, where like players ask the GM to leave the room so they can plan, which, you know, I, I, I think is a, is a misunderstanding of the role of what's going on in the game. Yeah, I mean, that, because you, you have a group dynamic and the GM is part of that dynamic. So you having somebody leave a room for that. I, I will pull somebody to a side as a GM of them giving them an item or knowledge that yep. nobody else in the party would necessarily have. I have no problem doing that. Uh, but to uh, every time a party wants to strategize, have the GM move themselves. Unless the GM is somebody who can't separate. Right. Uh, right. That's, I mean, that's a sign that the GM has failed to be able to compartmentalize his roles. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, Another, another thing I talk about in the book um, is I call it the secret art of abduction. Uh, abduction being the opposite of deduction. You know, deduction says if A, then B, A, therefore B. Abduction says if A, then B, B. So you're like, well, maybe A then, right? So it's, it, it does, it, and it's not deductively valid, but it's, you know, it's the, it's the uh, inference to the best explanation that's used to craft scientific theories and things. And I find as a game master that the ability to improvisationally abduct what's going on based on random roles becomes the, the, secret, the secret necromancy of great game mastery. So I have a whole chapter devoted to that. Um, you know, so if the players are out um, on a treasure hunt following a treasure map and you roll a random encounter with brigands, you know, the ability to improvisationally decide that the brigands also have a copy of the map and are going for the same, uh, the same destination. Uh, suddenly makes the world feel much richer and much more alive. That's a very hard thing to do to learn, I think, to learn to do on your feet. Yeah, and um, it, it is extreme. I, I remember in my earlier games, my early days of gaming, uh, back in high school and college, random encounters were simply random encounters. You know, they, they didn't have any depth. And uh, as such, in a way, your party could almost take them or leave them. Uh, now, I very much like random encounters because I like that ability to improvise depth. Exactly. Because you know, it adds, it, it makes the world alive. It makes the session alive because it's, it's, it's randomness, yet you still make it relevant. And I think that's the key. Yep, yep. You know, and it, and it takes experience and you really have to know the game and the players and the world and um uh but I, I yeah to me i think that that's that's when you really begin to emerge as a game master is when you can do that and and weave the random events into a coherent history um now the most controversial thing i say in the whole book is this uh, I, I, like i had people rant at me over this the book was originally published as a series of columns on the escapist years ago so each chapter as it came out you know i would get tons of feedback on it um, okay. This is the most, the most controversial line in the book. Is um, is uh, every rules light game is just a rules heavy game that hasn't been played enough. Um, which is to say that uh, that every time a GM makes a ruling, 
it's just like a common law judge resolving a case, it becomes law. And so uh, a rules heavy game is just a statutory game where the, the, the laws are written out. A rules light game is a common law game where over time you'll find out what the rules are through a series of judgments. And I think that that's the explanation for why every game in existence, uh, whether it be um, GURPS or Dungeons and Dragons or Shadowrun or Savage Worlds, every game in existence with each edition, it accumulates additional complexity and depth and supplements and things like that. And it, you know, it's, it's almost an inevitable process. You know, and I'm looking at that, and I'm, I'm I look at my prior occupation and the, our 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 book, our 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 rule book, and it doubled in size during my first ten years before they had to totally totally do a rewrite to cut it down to half the size. To by the time I left, it was again back to that double the size. And right, it, it, right, it really, you know. It, that's I, and I think that's a lot of you know some of the reasoning a lot of times behind rebooting editions is that the the number of you know rules that are added you know gets to the point where you're like all right we got to rewrite this and trim but it's never it's never ending you know serious I mean the interesting thing is when I put together Swords and Wizardry Light and I I went from Swords and Wizardry Core and Swords and Wizardry Lightbox and had to trim that down to four pages. The first thing that happens as I put that out is I was already thinking with James Spawn, dude, we could take these three levels and make it into seven. And, you yeah. know, we were already thinking on, on, on how to add more, more weight to this little thing that got whittled down. And I think that a lot of that's human nature, I guess. And like you said, like, oh, sorry, like you said, yeah, it, it's based upon rulings and rulings become rules. And right. Right. And if they don't, if they don't, it, it's unfair to the player. You know, the, I think the example I give in the book is of the characters need to cross a cavern. And so, you know, on the way to the cavern, a chasm, the, uh, the GM rules that it's a strength check to, you know, swing across on a rope. Um, and then on the way back, he rules, you know, you know, under the guise of, well, there's no rule that covers this, so it's just a GM ruling. As they're trying to escape across the chasm, he rules that it's based on encumbrance. And then the strongest player in the group is like, well, on the way in, I was able to easily swing across, and now I'm probably going to die. Like, what's up with that? And the answer can't just be, well, that's my GM ruling, right? That's, that has taken away the character's ability to make meaningful choices, because maybe they wouldn't have crossed the chasm in the first place if they knew that the rules were going to change on the way back. So you, you sort of each ruling has to really be respected as precedent. And the more often you make the ruling, the stronger the precedent, which is, you know, obviously I'm a lawyer by training. So that's how I tend to view the world. But um, it is a very lawyerly phenomenon. And that's why I call acts game masters. I call them judges very specifically for that reason. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, can, uh, especially with an old school game, which has less rules often built into it to cover all these circumstances you may make a ruling that is in retrospect maybe not the right one and i i've i've had those conversations with my players where it's like well listen the, this is the ruling at the time if we'll play it out and then at the end of the session we'll discuss and maybe yep. going forward we will use a revised version of the ruling that happened at the table 
you know, that, that is part of the group dynamic. You know, I guess you could say that at the end, it, you know, you have the judges legislature coming at the end saying, all right, well, I guess we actually need to, to write a law covering this. We need to write a rule yeah, covering exactly. this as a group. Exactly. Exactly. And then the, and then the players insist that they need more uh, conservative game masters on the bench to overturn the prior rulings. Um. <laughs> well, yeah, I, listen, my, I, I have certainly made uh, rulings that could have gone better in the game with things. Oh, me too. Yeah. And, you know, one act you led to a TPK and then afterwards we sat down and I was like, all right, you know what? We're going to go right up to five minutes before I killed you all. Cause you know what? That was a horrible decision on my part to, to the direction it went. And then you can, sometimes you can, it, the great thing is it, it, it is a game. So if yeah. you totally screw up uh, with group con- and at the end with the group consensus, you can, often fix some of those big screw ups because the idea is it's a, a, a if, if a campaign ends because uh as a group the party you know wh- whatever beyond bad luck they just totally screwed up and it's it's on them that's fine but when as a gm you cause your party to screw up because you didn't make the right call or you didn't explain things like you should have and you left out something that was important and you realize that after the fact there's no harm in going back and saying you know what i fucked up let's 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 yeah. reboot from right before that here's here's the information that you 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 need so. i've only ever had one situation where i had to do a full reboot and it was it was during the original r and empire campaign one of the players was leaving because he'd gotten a new job and so he was he was leaving the city and um, his character had always been sort of the chaotic, neutral, flirting with the dark side kind of guy. And so he, he decided that he was going to sort of turn to the dark side at a critical moment, betray the party. But he figured he'd get killed because he didn't have that powerful of a character. And it would make like a cool, dramatic exit. Well, lo and behold, when he actually did it, he, he accidentally won. And he ends up turning the tide of the battle. And everybody in the group got party wiped. Oh. And they were all super upset and you know really upset with him and he felt terrible like it was not at all what he intended to have happen he just wanted to have like a cool dramatic ending for his character because he was going to be sad that he was leaving his friends and um so we stopped the game took a vote and said all right you know we can either roll up new characters and say this happened and move forward or we can you know i'll I'll do it i'll do a 15-minute rewind and we can play this again and they unanimously voted for a 15-minute rewind. And then he decided not to betray them. And instead, I think he died gloriously fighting the Dark Lord or something. There you go. It's, it's kind of like uh, the old Marvel comics, what if? And it's like, yeah, yeah exactly. Just, we'll, we'll explore this one little branch of what if Peter Parker was not the one bitten? And then you kind of branch off. Well, that's, they, I, I don't have a problem with that. Like I said, I, I had to do that reboot, that total reboot once. Yep. And... Uh, but you know what? I'd rather do that reboot because, yeah, there's a screw up that happened. And it wasn't the players that screwed up. You know, it wasn't their, you know, if you, but you know it. You know those, they're rare. They're but rare. you know those. I don't, I don't mind TPKs when, when they're well deserved. But I mean, when it's a TPK because I screwed up as a GM, no, I can't. Yeah. The, the following campaign really did end with a full TPK, but it was the party's own fault. Um, and so they were like, oh, well, I guess we brought that on ourselves. And that was that. 
Um, yeah, there you yeah. go. There you go. And, and now it's just half the battle. Don't do it the next campaign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's definitely a, it's, I mean, game mastering is definitely a skill you learn over years and years of doing it, right? It's like that, uh, was the Malcolm Gladwell, like the 10,000 hours where you, you know, you have to do it, do something for 10,000 hours to become a master. Oh yeah, something like that. And I think, I think I put my, my, my time in at this point. I still get those, uh, pregame willies. You know, it's like stage fright. Even if you, you know, it's like once I'm in the game, once I'm running it, once I'm, in, I'm fine. But right before that, it's like, oh, geez. I get pregame willies before convention games. I don't get them anymore with my local group. Um, yeah, I, you know, but you're convention right. games, my stomach twists into a knot. You know? Yeah, because you're you're running for strangers that um, you don't have that, that that sense of community with that that sense of belonging that they know you, you know them, and when you have your own home group, you you kind of know what makes them tick. You know how to motivate them and how to move them to some extent. Uh, whereas with the convention group, they don't know you and you want to make sure that, you know, even if you do a TPK, that people leave the session satisfied with their time spent because they're expecting something for their convention time, whereas your home group knows they're in there for the long haul. The exactly. dynamics are different and their expectations are different. Yeah, I mean, it's it's similar to the difference between a movie and a Netflix TV show that lasts eight seasons, right? Like when you go see a movie, you really expect two hours of entertainment, just nonstop spectacle and amazing blockbuster effects. You know, with a with a TV show that's 13 episodes uh, across eight seasons, you understand that there's going to be a lot more slow moments and character building and mystery and plot development that a movie would simply never do. And, and if and if a movie was paced that way, audiences would walk out. Yeah, no, it, it and, and it's funny because it. it took me uh, uh, probably a session, session and a half to re-gear my mind to I'm not running a campaign at home. I'm actually running a, a convention game. It took me to, somewhere in the middle of my second convention session where I realized you got to – everything is different. The pacing is different in a convention game because you got to keep it moving. You know, yeah. you got to – like you said, it's the difference between – uh, going to a two-hour blockbuster movie where you're on the edge of your seat and watching uh, an excellent series play out on uh, on demand. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it, the convention play is actually something I've had trouble with for Adventure Conquer King System because most of what makes Axe different from the other retro clones is stuff that doesn't really appear in one-off play. Like in one-off play, you don't really care whether or not you've correctly figured out how many mercenaries the realm can support. But, you know, when you're actually doing a campaign which involves conquering, you know, your enemy realm, that really matters. And um, so a lot of times I think people that I, when I've run convention games for Axe, people have found like, oh, so it's basically a BX retro clone. And it's like, no, there's more to it. So I haven't a lot figured more to out how to bridge that yet to really do a convention game that shows off kind of the back end. Yeah, I think you'd have to almost, it, it would have to be multiple sessions. That was what Tavis Allison did at Gen Con the year we de debuted Axe, actually. So he ran it as, um, it was a three-session game, and in each of the sessions, your characters were five levels higher. So it was like you started off at second level, then you were seventh level, then you were 12th level. And, um, and then 
in the first stage, you were adventuring. In the second stage, you were conquering your fortress. In the third stage, you were defending it from an invading army. And uh, that, that seemed to be great, but it's pretty tough to get people to commit to three sessions at a, at a Gen Con. At any convention? Yeah, at anything. I mean, you know, our, our attention deficit disordered world, it's, I mean, frankly, it's hard to get people to pay attention for four hours to anything. Yeah, no, I, I, and I, I find that with the, like, I, I run Swords of Witchery Light, and I've been running it with 3D terrain, uh, the Mouth of Doom, and it's not a huge, I can't even reach the middle of the damn, uh, you know, terrain where I'm putting the uh, miniatures out, and I, I find that if I don't keep the game moving quickly, they metagame. And once they start metagaming, they start losing their interest. They, they love looking at this huge, you know, 3D terrain map, but they once they start, you know, metagaming it, they're they're not as immersed in it. So I I've learned to keep those games running very quickly. Uh, you know, I, I give them a break. But when we're running, we're running fast, and that works best. But again, I'm, I'm guess I'm treating it like uh, a blockbuster. Don't let them uh, uh, suspend their disbelief. Keep them going. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, so the uh, the last thing I wanted to mention about the book is a, a new chapter I wrote um, more recently. As I said, you know, the others were had originally been published uh, a few years back, and it was about the politicization of gaming. Um, and it tackles, tackles what do you do when situations arise in the game that uh, freak out or disturb some of the players? And the example I give is if you're running an RPG set in the Roman Empire where uh, slavery was absolutely common and accepted and part of daily life. And, you know, your legionary characters are you know, given a reward of a bunch of slaves for a victory in battle, which is absolutely customary. And some players get very, very offended at that. And so how, how do you as a game master handle that? And I, I propose three different strategies in the book. Um, a, uh, uh, one strategy is that you are, you just are upfront that you're playing characters in a world that has different moral values than what we have, and everyone is role-playing that. Uh, the second strategy is that you're playing characters who have contemporary moral values in a world that doesn't, and so you can feel free to try and change it and make it a better place. Or the third is that you play in a bespoke world which has uh, contemporary values imported into it. So it's the Roman Empire without slavery. And I think you kind of have to pick where you're going to be and get your players on the same page to avoid a lot of heartache down the road. That's uh, a very good point, especially because most role players are used to fantasy settings, you know, where a lot of the, 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 the true grit of the... Middle Ages and the Dark Ages is, is scraped away and not dealt with, you know. We... Exactly, yeah. And which is totally fine. Like, I mean, there's something fun about playing in the world where all of the knights is, knights are in shining armor and all the castles are nice looking and, you know, and the lords are good and whatnot. Um, it, uh, but, you know, if you start to stray outside of that, you can quickly get into um, interesting and uncomfortable territory. Um, I mean, we had, I, I remember running cyberpunk once where the players were, um, you know, they were, you know, edge runner assassin types and they were hired to attack a Yakuza clan. And so they had to um, uh, go on a, a series of hits. And um, one of them started to feel really bad. Uh, he was married to a Japanese woman and he felt like he was being a really bad guy by running around killing all these people in the Japanese neighborhood. 
was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of an interesting emotional uh, feeling um, to have. So um, I, I, you know, because RPGs are so powerful and they can tap into so much um, social context, I guess, you have to be aware of that. So anyway, so there's a section in the book now on that, which goes into it in obviously much more depth than I'm doing now. That's that's uh, an excellent section to have. I don't think people, I don't think a lot of GMs think about that ahead of time. How it's gonna, how that could affect their players. <clears throat> we we go into it as a GM, all gung ho and excited about whatever setting we're gonna present, whatever game we're gonna run. And I don't think we, especially with real world situations, we don't tend to uh, think far enough ahead, possibly. I mean, the worst fight I ever had in any campaign between two players was um, actually running keep on the borderlands when they encountered the kobold babies and the kobold uh, non-combatants who, you know, who don't fight. They don't even have stats. And um, the paladin in the group just said, look, these are creatures of chaos. They'll just grow up into monsters. They have no redeem- redeemable abilities. Let's just kill them all. And uh, the cleric in the group was like, that's, you know, abominable behavior. What gives us the right to kill them? And I mean, they just degenerated. This was many years ago. so. We were all sort of a lot younger and, and more feisty, but um, but boy, they just really went at it, and and so I made a really conscious decision when I made acts to make it explicit that you know beastmen are monstrous creations of chaos. They're you know they're the 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 the, the face huggers from Aliens, right? So when Ripley blows up the eggs and kills the face huggers, nobody feels bad. Like baby beastmen right. are just face huggers. Huh, that that I we my group had that same or similar argument about. I think orc children uh, and how to handle that because it became the whole discussion on uh, is it is it nature or nurture? And I was like, you know what? And this is going back to my college days. I was like, yeah. we're we're just gonna walk away from this. <laughs> I don't care. We'll we'll figure out what happened later. The night you're not taking them with you, so just leave it be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I get where people come from on it because you know if they are redeemable, then you're you're kind of awful if you kill them, um, which is why I just decided to make it explicit that they're you know they were created with chaotic magic, they're irredeemably chaotic. You can't save them, and they'll just grow up to be you know they, even as children they have no empathy. They eat they eat their own younger brothers, uh, and and uh, you know would devour their mothers if they could, and they just grow up to be even worse. So. Um, but that's, you know, that's just one example of like the tons of kind of issues you can run into these days. Oh, God, yeah. That might be my favorite section of the book right now. <laughs> just yeah, just to about, play certain things safe. There's a whole section on problem players. Another thing I talk about is, um, you know, whether you set the game up as competitive or cooperative between the player characters. You know, like when I run Cyberpunk, the players are often scheming against each other and hacking each other and backstabbing each other. But, you know, running Lord of Ring, Lord of the Rings, you expect a totally different sort of play style, right? Like it would be it would be absurd to discover that Bilbo has secretly been robbing Gandalf on the side. Um, and, and I think that's another area where you should be explicit with your players and decide kind of this is the tone we're going for and, uh, and, and this is the expectations. And then, and then it kind of becomes incumbent on the player, right? Like if you create the character who's an asshole, who everyone in the group hates, that's kind of on you because you knew what the expectations of the setting were. You knew what the expectations of the group are. So you can't just be like, oh, well, that's just my character. You're like, no, you, you, you made the character. So if you made like a psychopathic asshole, that's on you. Right. So, so. 
So I go into I go into a lot of detail like that on that whole section. It's very pragmatic, just practical advice that I haven't seen given anywhere. I'm I'm, I'm regretting that my flight to Milwaukee. Uh, well, I hope you're able to get through the full book. I mean, it's not super long. Um, no, no, I, and and I'm gonna tell you, yeah, I, I got through like the first, you know, ten pages because I was at a con, but it read very well. It read very smoothly. It wasn't. There were some. Uh, I'm not going to name any of the books, but there are some uh, books in gaming that are either about gaming or they are instructional for gaming that are not written in a manner that they are expected to truly be read. Maybe they're meant to be referenced to, referenced to, but you have a narrative tone that I find very readable. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, they were written... They were written essentially um, almost with me talking loud as I was writing columns. And so they're, they have kind of a breezy conversational tone to them, um, which is different actually than how I write rules. When I write rules, I write in a much more technical way. Um, but the, you know, I don't, I don't think you, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to give, uh, you know, the statute of limitations for gaming. I'm, I'm trying to give, you know, helpful <laughs> advice. So it's more like a, a four, almost like more like that sort of goofy four dummies tone. Well, it was, it was, I, I definitely enjoyed it. It was, it, it was, it wasn't something that, uh, what's the word here I'm looking for? There are some books that I read and they're great books to read when you're not tired because they make you tired. Oh yeah. 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 That wasn't your, your, your writing style is certainly not that your writing style is a, a, it's a pleasure. And it's coming from somebody who has uh, difficulty for the most part uh, reading long pieces of work uh, because I, I used to read like a novel a week and now I'm down to like a novel or two a year. But that's, and I said this before elsewhere, I, my brain got rewired from chemo. So I became more creative, but I have uh, much more difficulty uh, concentrating on a single piece of work that is long. I've noticed that. But I oh, didn't wow. have. I had. Yeah, it's, chemo is is weird. That was a long term effect for me. When did uh, that happen? I had uh, Hodgkin's about twelve years ago. And, oh wow! Uh, and uh, I, I handled chemo well enough that we did an extra two months of chemo because I didn't lose my hair, and uh, we followed up with radiation. So now here I am, you know, a decade plus later, and, I, and the after effects of, uh, you know, you notice them. So. Interesting. Wow. Well, I'm glad you recovered that. Uh, that's a that's a lymphoma. Those are those are nasty, man. Oh, uh, the largest the largest tumor was a grapefruit in my chest. Yeah. So yeah, it was yeah. it was uh, it was not fun. But um, that all being said, I'd rather be uh, as I am now rewired, more more creative, certainly more able to do things like this, which I wasn't going to be doing, I think, prior to that, but just I lost my ability to uh, devour novels and other things yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Um, I uh, uh, my my fa my own father passed away of lymphoma when I was uh, when I was a young man. So oh. I, uh, I'm familiar with how tough it is. So I'm I'm really glad to hear you were a, a conqueror, man. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, my, my I I never met my father-in-law because he also happened to uh, pass away from lymphoma uh, two years before I met my wife. So. 
yeah, it's strange the connections that you you, you find because of uh, uh, the great equalizer called cancer, but it, it makes it, it plays no favorites. It really, it really is. It really is, no doubt. Yeah. But uh, see, see, Alex, when I when I, when I get off this podcast, the first thing I want to do is uh, turn my iPad, which is right next to me on this desk, and get back to reading. Awesome. And that's the best thing I can say about it because, like I said. I started reading it, so I, 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 your narrative tone worked for me, and that's that's really special. But now that I'm getting peeks into further into the book, now I'm really like, you know, I, I like to believe. Here I am. I'm 51. I've been uh, GMing since I was 13, and you, you like to think that you know everything, but you can always learn more to make, to be better at your craft and. Just from this discussion that we've had, I can see there's a lot more that I can take bits and pieces of to bring my craft closer to perfection. I'm not going to ever perfect it, but right, no, totally. Yeah, I think for for a new game master, the more pragmatic sections are the most valuable, where it's just very hands-on advice, like this is how many points of interest you should put in your sandbox type stuff. Um, and then I think for the veteran game masters, it's it's more like the theoretical and uh, problem-solving stuff, which I think will be interesting to them. Because, uh, you know, a lot of game masters have game mastered without ever really thinking about game mastering. It's just something they do, so. Yeah, well, you, it, for most of us, you learn by watching somebody else at the other side of the uh, yep. GM screen run a game. Yeah. Or some of us, uh, I guess, you know, you taught yourself, You the, the group formed and somebody had to be the GM. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, I learned it from my older brothers who were in high school when D&D came out and I was, uh, you know, I was much younger. And so I was their their guinea pig that had to play when they were learning how to GM. And so I learned from them. Yeah, I I, I, I played in one session one on one before I coming the uh, GM months later. And oh, wow. You baptism by fire. Baptism by fire. And I think I've told this before, but I didn't understand. I had the DM's guide and the uh, player's handbook. Uh, birthday presents for my parents, along with a nice set of dice. No Munster manual, and oh. <laughs> uh, uh, so I just I ran my Munsters from the back of the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide. You know, they had that chart in the back, yep. and it and it didn't explain the abbreviations. So it was not that I can remember. So HD, like I still remember saying to myself, Ogre four plus one. Why don't you call it just five hit points? Because I thought HD was hit points. Oh wow. So, for my first month and a half or so until I, I, I think I bought a, a three or something like that, or maybe it was a G series until I bought my first commercial module. I just thought that that was the hit points each creature had. So my players were plowing through shit left and right. Oh, giant. that's hilarious. Oh, uh, hill giant, uh, eight plus one, right? Or eight plus three. Yeah. 11 hit points. He hits you, you're dead. But otherwise, look at all those XP you got. And then I realized, oh, guys, listen, I've been running this for a while. <laughs> right? Oh, man. I um, I was shocked when I went back and reread the Dungeon Master's Guide and uh, Player's Handbook from First Edition to realize that I had never actually played First Edition. I had played some weird combination of basic D&D with First Edition and it really had no resemblance whatsoever to the rules as written. Um, and it was so strange because I would have sworn that I had played first edition, but nope. Like I was like, I don't remember using these rules ever. 
pummeling and weapon speed factor and just oh, never use them. Weapon speed factor, uh, weapon versus AC adjustment, uh, interrupt running by with segments. Segments, spells. yes, yes. I, I, I'm like, I, what is a segment? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and here, and, and the funny thing is, we tried to run it by the book, and then we didn't call it house ruling, but as time went on, certain things were just, all right, we're not going to use segments anymore. Just, you know, we're not going to, because there was always a whole counting through the segments. All right. Now we're yep. in segment three. It's like, no. Yep. Two, yep. So we didn't come from Wargaming. You know, we did, that wasn't our history. So if we had come from Wargaming, it might have been a better fit like that. Oh, the game yeah, ran fine. Yeah. The game ran fine without segments. Ran fine. Uh, the we, we made up our own unarmed combat rules, which basically said that Fist did D2 damage and uh, have at it. Because yep. otherwise, you want to overbear somebody? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Nobody falls down in this world. It was, it was that bad. The rules just didn't. But those, there's a whole. You could you, you could probably write a book just about how the DMG was put together. It's just a hodgepodge of of rules, like the player's handbook is organized, and then you have the DMG, which is Gary thought this was cool. It should have all been labeled optional, 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 but it wasn't. Yep. Yep, yep. The, you know, the uh, I will say the the longest term impact on my life from the Dungeon Master's Guide is that I learned an enormous number of new words that I never learned how to pronounce. And to this day, yep. I sometimes drop these bombs and just people crack up around me because I'm saying the word completely wrong. And it's it's all Gary Gygax's fault because I was like nine years old and I should not have been exposed to those words. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, I, I agreed. There's, there's stuff there, and and remember back then too. These some of these words were really obscure. So they weren't going to show up in your family dictionary. Right, you know. exactly. And there was no internet. Like you weren't going to be like, nope. oh, let me go Google this. Yeah, so you had to figure out what it meant by the context in which it was being used, and then you had to figure out the pronunciation. Yep. Which was just a guess. Yep. Yep. Exactly. You know, and milieu all the different gemstones and you know the pole arm i mean it was it was hilarious yeah it was, it was, it was good stuff but it was it was a different you know time like the internet lowers that barrier so much to get into gaming it uh, really I, does it really does it's yeah. really transformative yeah so but, uh, in, in good ways and bad oh yeah no uh, but I, I i think overall it's good i i think that you know a lot of times we were gatekeeping in our youth by saying, ah, I can play this game and you can't. And now I look back and it's like, man, we were just assholes. You know, <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were nerds trying to be cooler than other nerds. And that was just probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, definitely was uh, much more arrogant when I was younger. So I, uh, if I went back in time, I'd probably have to smack myself around. You're not all that. What are you thinking? So now, Alex, this is available on Kindle, right? Is there any, yes. anywhere else? Uh, it is available on Amazon, and it has just been made available as a soft cover. Amazon hasn't updated the um, entries to make them available so that they're linked yet, which I need to email them about. But there is both a soft cover and a, a, a Kindle version available. Oh, that's damn cool. Yeah, Amazon right, exclusive. Yeah. Um, but but it is available soft cover. In fact, I'm holding the soft cover now in my hands. It's very nice looking. 
Yeah. Amazon does a pretty good job with their uh, print on demand. They really do. Now, I don't know what they call it now, like Amazon Books or something like that. I don't yeah, they got rid of CreateSpace. I think it's Amazon. Well, what I'm on is the uh, KDP, which is the Kindle Digital Program. And then okay. once you sign up for the KDP, you can then, after you have your books approved as Kindle, you can have them made into soft covers. It, there's a, it doesn't let you do anything other than basic soft covers through KDP. I think there's a different service for if you want to do like a print-on-demand hardcover. Oh, uh, all right. That's, that's, uh, that's cool. I'll, I'll definitely include that in the show notes. People can find it. Cool. I, if you want, I can send you the links. Oh, uh, you making my job easier? Of course. I'm not going to say no. All right. I'll do that. Cool. Excellent. Wow. I think we uh, we covered a lot here, and uh, it's a good it's a good time as always. I always enjoy hanging. Oh yeah, it's a pleasure, man. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. It's uh, it's great. No, this is it's good. I mean, we have a, a pretty full. Uh, room listening in live which is uh we do we do we have a lot of the uh, a lot of a lot of spectators hello everybody so yeah so uh, yeah hack and slash no I'm, I'm i'm not gonna name the book if you if you if you want to know you can reach out to me later on a personal level and i'll you know how to contact no i'm not gonna name them uh publicly because i somebody who wrote one of those books won't even talk to me at convention so i'm not gonna go any further than that um but uh Alex, yes. again, thank you. It's been a good time, and I can guarantee the audience that we will have Alex back again at some point. We just have we just have a good time. It's great. Thanks again, man. You're very welcome. Uh, folks, as always, stay safe, be well, God bless, uh, and I will talk with you all tomorrow. Later, folks.